The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. What draws us into this, uh, these, the, passage, the passage here in chapter 7 is the description in verse 3 uh, that Melchizedek uh, described rather fully here in this long sentence is set apart, uh, or excuse me, is, is made like the Son of God, made like the Son of God. And we were setting um, on a way to, um, to explaining that, trying to pinpoint the thought here. We were orienting ourselves a bit, talking about um, making some observations about um, Melchizedek as he's introduced in this passage and uh, accenting that we are to see him, uh, not as F.F. Bruce says, a biological anomaly, but as a genuine historical figure, uh, and especially his typical significance uh, that the writer is concerned with here. And and as we... um, it's in terms of that typical significance then that we're going to come to appreciate this description of him as made like the Son of God. And we're seeing um, that the point, the typical point then, is um, the fact that, as it can be um, captured here, summed up here at the beginning of, or among these predicates in verse 3, that Melchizedek is without genealogy. Uh, That is what particularly contrasts him with the Levitical order, where genealogy is everything. I think maybe I'd said right um, at the end that if you look in verse um, 6 of chapter 7, uh, Melchizedek is described there as ha me genealago genealogumenos, the one who is without genealogy. See, that captures um, the whole thing. Or the one who is not, as we ought to translate there, the one who is not descended from them, that is, from um, among the sons of Levi. Now, keeping that in mind then, our uh, concern, let's focus in more particularly on this expression made like the Son of God. And the key here, by the way, I should make uh, clear, if you haven't already uh, perceived it, uh, and as you'll see if you you haven't yet done your reading, what I'm doing here is is picking up, um, reinforcing Voss's line of interpretation, accenting uh, some of the key considerations there. The key here is to see that Son of God despite what we might first anticipate, Son of God is not a reference to the incarnate Christ. That the reference to Son of God here is not to Christ in his historical experience. And, and, and this, uh, may, this can be a, it may, it's a somewhat subtle point, in fact, and not e- perhaps easy to get a hold of right away. In other words, um, 
Melchizedek, the key we're saying here is that Melchizedek in his historical appearance is not made like the Son of God in his historical appearance. Uh, you see, uh, so far as history is concerned, uh, so far as the historical appearance of the Son is concerned, it's the other way around, as the writer is very clear. Uh, Christ, the incarnate Christ, is after the order of Melchizedek. In other words, Christ is made like Melchizedek in his incarnate appearance. Um, not the other way around. So that we're going to have to understand that when the writer says here, made like the Son of God, that the designation uh, it, uh, Son is a designation of the Son in his eternal divine existence. In his eternal and divine existence. That is what is pointedly brought into view here. So that the, uh, the controlling point here in the tip typology is that the historical person, Melchizedek, is made like the eternal Son of God. The eternal Son of God. Melchizedek is a type, a shadow, a type of the eternal Son. He shadows. He is a shadow of the eternal Son. That is how he functions typically. Now, more specifically, we can see uh, two dimensions of this typical function of Melchizedek. And uh, uh, we can see that coming out in the immediate context. Uh, first of all, we can see uh, the typical function of Melchizedek in his greatness. His greatness. Verse 4. Uh, Behold, consider... Pelikos, Hutos. How great is this one? How great this one is. And as it's spelled out then, uh, the greatness of Melchizedek, his typical greatness, can be seen from the fact that Abraham gave him tithes. Abraham tithed to him, or correlatively verse 6, uh, it's there put the other way around. He received tithes from Abraham, looking at it from, uh, from both um, the giver and the receptor. Now, what's involved in that? Well, to uh, give tithes is an act of religious homage. It's an act of worship to give tithes. It is to acknowledge greater religious dignity, at least. Greater religious dignity or significance. And that, you see, uh, we need to keep in view here. This is an act of religious homage, and I should have pointed out, uh, notice uh, it is homage given to Melchizedek as verse 1, he is priest of the Most High God. Priest of the Most High God. And the point here now is that uh, such a one is tithed to, is given this religious homage by the Father of all believers. 
Because Abraham, of course, is not simply in view here as an individual, but as the writer has put it, uh, he doesn't call Abraham the father of all believers. But 2.16, he talks there about, about, he talks of believers as the seed of Abraham. Believers are the seed of Abraham. And as the writer uh, goes on then to bring out, um, particularly as you look at verses 9 and 10, not only did, did Abraham, the father of believers, tithe to Melchizedek, but through Abraham, indirectly, the whole Levitical priestly order brought tithes to Melchizedek. So to speak, through Abraham, Levi also, who received tithes, gave tithes, being still in the loins of his father. Uh, so the greatness of the Melchizedek figure is in the fact that he received tithes, and then further, uh, related uh, verses 6 and 7 bring out that Melchizedek blessed Abraham. And blessed Abraham, the writer appears to be saying here, as the one who had received the promises. He blesses Abraham, the promise holder. So the typical significance of Melchizedek is, first of all, seen in his greatness along these lines. Um, but then uh, coming closer to the... Um, the expression that brings us into this passage, made like the Son of God, uh, the um, Mo, uh, Melchizedek functions typically in the eternity quality that attaches to his person. The aura of eternity, we can say, that surrounds him. Not only is that is, uh, is said and so uh, accented here, but by we, we, we find we can see that eternity aura in the narrative in Genesis 14. Now you might wonder about that as you read uh, the narrative, but uh, particularly as we read Genesis 14 through the eyes of the, uh, of the writer here, author of Hebrews, uh, I think we can see that we can say that he takes. Uh, that eternity dimension of things by a kind of appeal to silence. In other words, by what Genesis does not say, does not say about Melchizedek. And you see, um, so what I'm getting at here is the way the writer expresses himself in, in, uh, in verse 3. As he looks at Genesis 14, what he sees there, you see, are all these ah, alpha privative negating alphas, without father, without mother, without genealogy. So that um, uh, what is not said about Melchizedek uh, creates this, uh, this aura of mystery or eternity. So, uh, to, to bring this out, uh, make sure we see this here. You see, it's the Son of God 
as a person, as an eternal person, in distinction from his office and incarnate activity. It's the Son of God as person who is the pattern according to which Melchizedek is made priest and king. Say that again. It's the Son of God as person, as eternal person, in distinction from his historical activity. The eternal Son of God as person is the pattern according to which Melchizedek is said here to be made priest and king. So that the underlying principle of concern here, I think we can say evidently, is that the dignity of office is based on the worth of the person. The significance of office or or the dignity of office follows from the significance of the person. So let me uh, try once again to uh, to bring the threads uh, together here, the, the, the structure or, excuse me, or the pattern of thought. Uh, the first point is that the greatness and eternity, those two facets that we were just accenting, the greatness and, and eternity of the person of the Son of God determines the typical greatness and eternity appearance of the historical figure Melchizedek. The greatness and eternity of the person of the Son determine the greatness and eternity appearance, typical appearance, of the historical figure Melchizedek. And so the character of his priesthood is determined then that way. Now, a second factor then from um, the wider context is that the priesthood, the priesthood now of Christ, that priesthood, historically speaking, in terms of the history of redemption, the priesthood of Christ is copied according to the toxis of Melchizedek, the order of Melchizedek. So that as a third consideration here, ultimately, through Melchizedek as a typical link, ultimately, it is the divine, eternal nature of the Son of God that shapes his Christ's priesthood and gives it its uniqueness. The whole typology of Melchizedek, we're saying, of functions to show that it is the eternal divine nature of the Son that shapes his priesthood and gives it its uniqueness. In other words, the writer wants to reinforce that it is the eternal divine sonship that makes Christ's priesthood what it is in distinction from every other kind of priesthood. And the Melchizedek uh, figure, Melchizedek uh, uh, typology, functions to reinforce 
that consideration. That Christ is the unique priest, he is according to the order of Melchizedek, because he is the eternal son of God. And in that uh, ultimate nexus or connection, Melchizedek is made like the son of God. All right, I think that, so far as I can see, that, that takes us to the, to the nub and gets us at the heart of, of what's going on here uh, in, this, in the writer's reference to Melchizedek. Any questions before we move on? Okay, you'll think about it. All right, uh, to round off um, this discussion uh, more briefly, a uh, more brief look at 728. 728. <clears throat> the writer says, the law on the, uh, for the law appoints men as high priests who are weak. The law appoints as high priests men having weakness. But the word of the oath, which is after the law, comes after the law, appoints, understood, a son who has been made perfect forever. Now, 728, we can say, constitutes an immediate culmination point in the writer's argument. It's a peak point in the, uh, you're going to sort of graph uh, um, the ups and downs or the, or the heights and, and planes of, of the argumentation. This represents a, a high point. Brings to a climax, we can say, the discussion that began, uh, the discussion in the section that begins at 613. And what we have here, uh, what we have in that section, 613 through 728, is the, uh, a preliminary statement, uh, an initial statement of the superiority of the priesthood of Christ, as that is a priesthood according to the order of Melchizedek. Its superiority, um, particularly to the Levitical priesthood, the priesthood which is katatain toxin our own, according to the order of Aaron. Uh, to put it another way, uh, in terms of the work that we've uh, done together and the point we accented on back in the very first lecture, what we have here is an initial statement in this passage of the kafalion um, that is stated in 8.1. In other words, the main point is that we have such a high priest who is set down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high. And as that point then is further elaborated in chapters 8 through 10. So uh, 728 is, is a key, you see, in, in bringing um, uh, these considerations together. You can see the antithetical parallelism that is there, uh, constructed along the lines of contrasting um, old and covenant and new covenant. Uh, what the writer says, on the one hand, the law appoints as high priests men who are weak. Um, and that weakness is, uh, I think you can say from the context, a kind of ultimate weakness. 
uh, they are weak in the sense, verse 3, of verse 23, that they are prevented by death from continuing. That is undeniably a weakness. Death prevents you from continuing in office. <clears throat> On the other hand, over against the law, the writer sets, and this is a very interesting uh, expression, the word of the oath coming after the law. Over against the law, he, he, uh, he, he sets this later word of oath that appoints as high priest a huios who has been made perfect forever. So you can see then uh, how our point um, that we're wanting to make here, the connection between sonship and high priesthood, comes out here very pointedly. Just uh, The writer is saying in this climactic statement, it's just in his identity as son that he is high priest forever. In his identity as son, he is high priest forever. And, and notice here... Um, I think it's, it, it's, it's useful to point this out and, and um, touched on already in, in some other things we've been saying. Notice the breadth of the conception of sonship that's in view here. By the way, this is, um, this is the next to last reference to Christ as huios, as son, that we have in the document. The, the only uh, other one uh, later on is in 1029. Uh, but note the breadth of conception here. There is an ontological dimension because the son, you see, is seen in contrast to anthropoi, to mortal human beings. as such mortals are appointed as high priest. So I think that th there is ultimately an ontological dimension, but at the same time that is joined with a messianic thrust because we are told that it is in his identity as son that, the, uh, that he is made perfect. He is made perfect. Looking at the, uh, and we want, to, as you'll see from the outline, that's the next topic we want to move uh, into uh, fairly soon, rest of our time today, uh, reflecting on this theme of the perfecting of Christ. But we can say here already uh, that perfecting is to be understood in, uh, in, in terms of the messianic movement from humiliation to exaltation. Humiliation to exaltation. <clears throat> we could uh, uh, quickly raise here um, to, to, to sum up um, the uh, the discussion or give us a um, 
a, a brief summary of, of the discussion that we've been developing, trying to develop under this head of the relationship between son and high priest. Uh, we could ask the question now particularly this way, how does Christ's divinity, his eternal sonship, shape his high priesthood? And particularly as we uh, look at the immediate context here in chapter 7, look at verses 26 and 27, um, that brings out these considerations, that Christ is high priest in that he is holy, innocent, undefiled, and separated from sinners, so that he has no need to offer sacrifices for his own sins. And so it, it's, uh, it, it's that, those qualifications, we can say, expressed in verses 26 and 27 are rooted uh, particularly in his eternal sonship, ultimately. Um, more specifically, that accents the aspect of eternity, more specifically, um, concerning his identity as eternal son uh, from the broader context as we've seen the outcome of Christ's high priestly activity the outcome as he is source of salvation 5.9 and as he is uh, archegos in 2.10 pioneer, author, however, um, forerunner, however you want to translate that. Uh, the outcome of his priesthood, you see, is just in bringing many sons to glory. Many huioi es doxan. Many sons to glory. So that the connection um, here is surely this, because ultimately, eternally, he is Huios, therefore the outcome of his priestly ministry is that there are other Huioi. Ultimately, because he is son, the outcome of his work is many sons. Now we could say that... Um, in the light of our survey that we've done here, particularly under the head of sonship and high priesthood, and, uh, and even more specifically, considering 728 as a theme, uh, as a summary statement, uh, that a couple of questions su suggest themselves to be uh, reflected on, pursued further. First of all, um, the reference that we have to the perfecting of the Son the perfecting of the Son in his high priestly ministry. That's the issue that we're going to go on and explore, uh, try to explore in some detail. Uh, but there is a second um, dimension that um, comes through here that, that we're not going to be able to take the time to do, and, and, um, uh, but I, I set out as, as something that uh, needs to be thought through more carefully than I think it has in, in at least in all of the interpretation that I've seen. And that is 
what seems to be the character of the exaltation as an oath event, as a promise-confirming oath. When the writer says, the word of the oath which comes after the law, he, of course, is thinking in terms of the language of Psalm 110.4. The Lord has sworn and will not repent. You are priests forever according to the order of Melchizedek. But then that has to be connected, you see, particularly with its fulfillment in the, uh, in the, in the uh, exaltation, the realization of that in the exaltation. And the passage in 6, 13 through 20 uh, brings in that same dimension, uh, points to the, to the oath, the confirmatory uh, oath, as itself what takes place in the exaltation. So the exaltation as a promise-confirming oath, or at least the realization of that oath. All right, if uh, there are no questions here, we can go on, and this would bring us to C on our outline, um, the perfecting of the Son as high priest. The perfecting of the Son as high priest. This notion of the perfecting of Christ and... uh, I think, especially if you've never thought about it very much before, um, lingered over it, it's, it's a striking notion of Christ being perfected. That appears in three places, 2.10, 5.9, and 7.28. And uh, we can say immediately is to be understood in terms of his identification with human beings, his sharing in flesh and blood, his coming uh, to the aid of the seed of Abraham, as the writer accents that, particularly in the the context of 2.10 and 2.14 through 16. In other words, um, this notion of the perfecting of Christ is, is going to have to be understood in terms of his full, genuine humanity. Keep that perspective uh, clear. Now, when these three verses are looked at along with a closely related passage in 4, 4 through uh, 14 through 16, and we're going to want to touch on that passage too, um, When these four passages, in other words, are uh, considered, the notion of perfecting is brought into connection with three other ideas, suffering, temptation, and sympathy. Or, um, as we might also translate or categorize here, mercy. Suffering, temptation, mercy, or sympathy. 
Um, I haven't taken the time to read them here, and I, I get, I, because we're going to look at each in, in, um, in, in its context, in order. Um, at least 2.10 and 5.9, we've already looked at, at 7.28. But um, uh, you, you would see then these, these uh, corollary uh, categories coming out, related categories. That then, as we uh, reflect on that, raises the question of their relationship. How are these four notions related? So, um, perfecting, suffering, temptation, and mercy. Now, along general lines, um, on the surface of things, we might say, um, it seems clear, for one thing, that suffering and temptation develop sympathy. The direction of the thought moves that way. Suffering, temptation, develop sympathy. And further then, through this development, as suffering produce and temptation develop sympathy, they bring about the perfecting of Christ for his priestly work. We should also say not only for his priestly work, in his priestly work. So that uh, the relationship is such here that... that uh, uh, the, these categories in relationship, that perfecting is the, is the ultimate outcome. But once this has been observed, the, the general pattern that suffering moves through temp, tempt, and temptation moves to sympathy and then to perfecting, several uh, other questions, area of questions, emerge that we need to uh, give more careful attention to. For one thing, what is, uh, first of all, these other areas, what is the relationship between suffering and temptation? Suffering and temptation. Are they coextensive? Or are the temptations wider in extent? That is, is there more to temptation than what is involved in suffering? Or is, is temptation considered from some other viewpoint than that of suffering? We could also raise here what we might uh, call the question of direction. Does suffering give rise to temptation or is it the other way around? Is it that temptation gives rise to suffering? So that, uh, first of all, on the relationship between suffering and, and, and temptation. Are they coextensive or is temptation uh, a broader category? And uh, also, which gives rise to which? A second area of question. Uh, looking more now, at, uh, more pointedly at the category of, of sympathy or mercy. What exactly is the pity, another category we could use. What, what exactly is the pity or mercy that is engendered by suffering 
and temptation. How more exactly is that sympathy produced by suffering and temptation to be understood? And we could uh, pose uh, the question more specifically this way. Are we talking here about a compassion that responds to human suffering and misery in general? Or is the compassion, the responding compassion uh, of a more specific, qualified character? That is, is it more specifically a religious compassion? That is, a compassion that responds to the moral and religious danger that is involved in suffering. So is it, the question we're raising here, secondly here, is the compassion, a compassion that responds to the human condition in general or particularly to the ethical religious dimension, the danger that is involved in suffering? And then thirdly, worth exploring um, is uh, to, tr to try to identify more exactly what is involved in the perfecting of Christ. What are the components uh, involved in his being made perfect? Now with that matrix of concern, that, those sets of questions, um, let's proceed to, uh, to look at um, the three of the four passages that we've uh, indicated the verses. First of all, 2.10. 2.10 and following. 2.10 in its context. Now, 2.10 uh, begins, if you have a Greek text, probably it's true in the English uh, versions too. It, uh, we have a paragraph break at this point, begins a paragraph. Uh, it was fitting for him. And the auto there, uh, there's an interesting syntax uh, phenomenon here we won't get into probing uh, the dimensions of. But the auto, we can say, uh, uh, certainly here, has to be understood as referring to God. Um, if we wanted to distinguish here from the Son, um, God, the Father, it was, uh, no, excuse me, I have that wrong. I want to say it the other way around. Um, no, I, I, I did say it right. The alto is referring to, um, to God the Father. On account of whom are all things and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, was fitting for God in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the archegon, 
the author of their salvation, dia pathematon, through sufferings. So uh, particularly the thought we want to focus on here in verse 10, it draws us here. The writer says, it was fitting that God should perfect Christ through sufferings. And it's fitting further, the writer says, because Christ was archigos soterios. Author, captain, source of salvation. Um, in other words, the instrument that God uses to lead many sons to glory. So in other words, we're told here in verse 10 that sufferings are the means to perfecting. Notice uh, the connection expressed by dia with the genitive, qualifying uh, the, um, the, the notion expressed in the, 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 the perfecting notion expressed in the infinitive. Perfecting is the end, we can say, looking at another way, the end that is aimed at in suffering. Notice that the reference to suffering here is in the plural, pathematon. So that sufferings in their plurality, and that is to say as a succession of events, suffering as a sequence or succession of events is what affects the um, perfecting. The thought, in other words, anticipates, I, I think we can see here uh, the writer anticipating what he's going to say in 5.8. We'll be looking at that context before too long. Um, where he says that Christ learned obedience from the things which, the things, plural, which he suffered. So that we can say then that in, in, in some way, uh, particularly an, anticipating the, the notion of learning in 5.8, uh, the writer sees the sufferings as a, as a, in their plurality, as a sequence Sufferings um, are a pedagogical process, a course of training, we might say, that leads to perfection. By the way, uh, note that, uh, that the different uh, function of the reference to suffering in verse 10 and what we have in the middle of verse 9. See, verse 9 talks about Jesus, about seeing Jesus crowned with glory and honor on account of the suffering of death. Notice the difference then. We don't have, uh, uh, even though the uh, uh, reference to suffering in back-to-back -back verses, not only is there a difference between singular and plural, but notice that in verse 9, uh, the thought is that the exaltation is a reward for suffering. 
In verse 9, exaltation is a reward for suffering. In verse 10, perfecting is the result of sufferings. Now, how more exactly do the sufferings uh, serve this end of perfecting? Well, I think the answer to that comes out in the verses that follow, particularly in what, um, in, in the immediate unit, is, is the climactic statements in verses 17 and 18, where again, um, the we encounter the idea of suffering. We'll get this. before us the writer says for in what he suffered in what he suffered so you see uh, the idea of suffering brackets this paragraph the paragraph opens with a reference to suffering and closes with a reference to suffering Verses 17 and 18 then are properly taken as amplifying, giving us some detail to the perfecting that takes place through suffering. And we can um, uh, see the movement something like this. Verse 10, we have a specific thought of fellowship in suffering. Now, why do I say fellowship in suffering? because of the identification of Christ in verse 10 as archegos. And that anticipates, see, that, that gives him a solidarity with others. It's in his identity as, as um, archegos of salvation, author of salvation, that he is made perfect through sufferings. And then um, that points to what is accented in the verses that follow following that as Archegos, he has brothers. And verse 11, in fact, brings out, you see, the general notion of, of the fundamental identification or solidarity before God that lies in back of the specific thought of verse 10. Verse 11 says, the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are, pontes, all ex henos. So verse 11 gives us a, a general notion of solidarity. We can say then that verse 10 specifies for the, um, the archegos sharing a fellowship in suffering. Then what happens, without going into uh, all of the, the details of the text, beginning at verse 12, uh, by a process of, of uh, becoming more specific, the writer brings the general thought of verse 11 back down again in verses 17 and 18 to a specific application in suffering. That is, in that Christ is made like his brothers, katapanta, in all things. Now, with that 
another quick sketch of, of what's happening through the passage. Uh, from the specific notion of fellowship and suffering, bringing out the general principle that establishes fellowship or solidarity, and then tracing that back down, uh, again, uh, giving it a specific application in suffering, verses 17 and 18. Um, let's read um, 17 and 18. Uh, whence he had... Notice the, uh, the modal verb here is, is slightly different than in verse 10. Verse 10 says, uh, uh, verse 10 says, epipen. It was fitting. Now we see uh, that the fitting is not simply a matter of what was, was nice or appropriate, but what was necessary. He had to be made like his brothers, katapanta, in all things. Why? in order that he might become merciful and faithful high priest in the things that pertain to God. We have here an adverbial, um, a um, syntactically interesting little unit. It's a um, prepositional phrase with a, in, in an attributive position with the neuter plural article the things toward God, and it functions then as a, as a unit to, to give an adverbial force in the things that pertain to God, we could say. Um, in order that he might be a faithful high priest toward God, in order to propitiate the sins of his people, or sins of the people. We notice last, Remember last time we called attention to the present uh, infinitive here, with the idea of propitiation. Then, verse 18, there's a, there's a translation question um, that I'll, I want to draw attention to, but we can, I'll translate it now the way in which I think it om, om, ought almost certainly to be taken. For in that he suffered, or when he suffered, since he was tempted, for since he was tempted, when he suffered, he is able to come to the help to aid those who are being tempted. So you see the ideas of, of um, suffering and temptation are very pronounced in 18, very explicit in 18. Now, what verse 17 expresses is a solidarity between Christ and believers his being made like them in suffering. Um, that, the writer says, equips him for his priestly work. It enables him to become a high priest who is both, both merciful and faithful. Merciful and faithful. Faithful in mercy, we can say. A fidelity of compassion. And this solidarity in suffering, this solidarity in suffering, uh, enables him 
further to propitiate sin, the sins of the laos. Now, the progression of thought here uh, makes clear now to us, thinking back to one of the, the, uh, the areas of question that we uh, sketched at the outset, the movement of thought here, I'm saying, makes apparent the quality of mercy, if Shakespeare will permit us to take that over here. The quality of mercy that is in view here the quality of the sympathy. You see, it is not a sympathy in general. It's not just a feel for human beings without further qualification. But it is, specific, it is, is specifically a religious kind of sympathy. a religious kind of sympathy, a religious sympathy in the sense that it is concerned with the sufferings of believers as those sufferings have a moral dimension to them. The sufferings of believers on their moral side is where the sympathy is directed. Well, that kind of catches us in the middle of a, of a, a um, compound thought, but let's take a break and then we'll um, jump right back in the middle of things here.